This is the Lost Start of Communication, hosted by Molly and Trisha. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lost Start of Communication podcast. Today, we have a very special episode because we have our first guest. Joining me today is Scott Carpenter. He is a frontline staff member working with clients coming out of long-term mental hospitals to help them integrate back into the community. So I'll let Scott describe a little bit more about what he does, but we're so excited to have him on the show today as his job is incredibly relevant to all of the communication skills that we've discussed, and I think we can all learn something from the type of work that he does. So welcome, Scott. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, yeah, it sounds so grand saying I'm a frontline staff member, but it's one of those, it's a funny one. I'm just trying to give the impression that as opposed to maybe an administrator is someone who sees someone once a week, you know, once every few weeks, I am someone who's still like currently engaged with them every day, talking to them, helping them, et cetera, et cetera. It's a weird one because I don't want to give too much information Mm -hmm. about exactly what I do because part of the idea is if we're helping these guys get back into the community and I'm seeing the community, you shouldn't be like, oh, I know exactly what those other people are. I know what their situation is. But, um, yeah, so I'm a supervisor on second shift at a group home that aims to take these people and I don't want to say rehabilitate because the bulk of that work's already been done, but help them imagine someone who's, you know, been in jail for 10 years and they have all those mentalities and they have all those ideas and the world works a different way. And then you throw them out in the community and then suddenly they don't really have the skills Like, even just their communication skills might be different. For them, they think everything is tit for tat, when in reality, you're saying, no, people will help you. You just have to be kind. You have to talk to them. When you're aggressive with them, it doesn't work. A lot of things like that, just sort of softening the edges, making sure they keep up with their medications, with their job if they have it, their et cetera, et cetera. Okay, cool. So let's back up for a minute, just so that we can paint a really clear picture of what your day-to-day is like. It's an actual residential home Mm -hmm. where six people that had been long-term patients at mental hospitals now reside, and you all help them prepare for getting back out in the real world. Yes, that's a much shorter way. That's so interesting because I didn't even know things like that existed because I've, I've never been in that situation. So how many people do you work with you? On this. Um, hmm. Well, I guess our structure is for to boil it down in the easiest way: three shifts. You have roughly three full-time people and a part-time person for each shift, because there has okay. to be two people there at any time. Okay. And then we have a behavioral health counselor who is, you know, you can largely figure out. And then we have the overall house supervisor. So part of the problem is that they are there during the day, which is. Good, because they're doing a lot of the background stuff, but whenever the guys are actually there, they're not necessarily there all day to take all the questions, and so a lot of stuff comes to a lot of improv of just taking their needs and figuring out, oh boy, what are we going to do? Yeah. So how did you get into that? Like, what did you study, or is this something you always wanted to do? You know what? It's funny. I never realized. It's hard to say if this... If working in this field, working with these type of people is something I that actually fits my personality or if I got the job and my personality started to fit around it. But I graduated with a degree in psychology and 
it just kind of started off as like I did an internship working with geriatrics and people with Alzheimer's. And so weirdly, I was skilled at holding classes where no one is paying attention <laughs> or I can just be the center of attention and kind of bring energy to everyone. And that did transfer very well here. And I kind of knew geriatrics was, that was fine. It was a good fit. It was one of those where I did well, but I never felt like, oh boy, this is my calling. And then whenever I got this job, I was just applying to a bunch of places. I applied for first shift and the supervisor called me and said, hey, I see you're a young guy. You're just graduating, et cetera, et cetera. I think second shift will work well for you. And now I, I relish it. I love the bizarre. I love the weird. And these clients are something I do want to get into is I feel like they communicate in a kind of a bizarre way, but something with these clients is they want the same things as us. Like they still want love. They still want approval. They still want a sense of, you know, purpose in their life. The way that they communicate it is often bizarre, you know, whether it's with their dilute communicating via their delusions or just by doing things that are just don't add up, don't make sense. But the key thing is you have to be empathetic, and the things that they want are not bizarre. It's not bizarre for these guys to want to have a job so people look up to them. It's not bizarre for them to want to just be able to take their medications and work on their goals. Their goals may be bizarre, but that really is so unusual to want to just be able to live your own life and do what you believe in. Yeah, so I I definitely want to hear more about that. Just kind of walk us through the process of how you figured out what they were trying to communicate. And I'm sure sometimes it's still thinking on the spot, as you said. And how do you adapt your communication style to meet their needs? You know, I'm kind of happy you asked that because I've been thinking about that one. Because it kind of boils down to time. Because I think of a lot of the time, like especially... Like maybe if you're at a bar and you're meeting a bunch of people, you know, you have those people that you just click with that you feel like you don't know much about them, but you're going like, it's all the union archetypes. You feel like, oh, I know this type of person. Oh, I know exactly what type of person this is. And you kind of break them down into categories with these guys. And especially I think with a lot of bizarre mental health, it's a matter of time. I thought you know, I was like, oh, I have this education and stuff, blah, blah, blah. I'm better than the lay person. I can understand. But you just have to talk to them or know them for well enough. You couldn't. I think, too, when you see people with mental illness on the street and they say things at you and you're looking at them weirdly because it's so bizarre. And it is a little narcissistic to think that I know so much about people that I would meet someone with mental illness who thinks in a completely different way than me. And I would just be able to pick up on it and immediately go, oh, I know what's going on. It mm-hmm. really does take time because you have to build empathy. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I feel like mental illness is often very well hidden. And so if I, for example, come across a person on the street that has a mental illness and I don't know it, I might be less likely to take that perspective that you have that it's like, oh, what is going through their mind? How can I adapt my communication to meet their needs? How am I supposed to know? You know, I think of, I have this friend who had undiagnosed anxiety for the longest time. And so when we didn't know he had anxiety, he would be, he would just be doing these things that he'd act in weird ways. He would just get unreasonably upset and we'd be all upset with him. Like, come on, man, why you can't, why can't you just chill out? But as soon as he, you know, said, oh, actually, you know what? I have anxiety and I've really been working on it. Then everything starts clicking in your head and you start going, oh, and you can be empathetic. 
And these guys, I mean, I guess one of their strengths is that they kind of wear mental illness on their sleeves. So you immediately know, oh, I have to approach this differently. Mm -hmm. But I find with a lot of mental illness, with things like depression or anxiety, it just comes out in ways of people just saying, oh, I don't want to go out today. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just don't have the energy to, to do that. And as someone, when I don't know that they're struggling through something, I don't have that empathy. And you're just saying, come on, you just need to get out of the house or you just need to try new things. And it's not until... I, you know, the mental illness labels are pretty harmful, but in a way it is a funny how they work that sometimes knowing that they have the illness allows me to approach empathy in a different way as expo- as opposed to expecting them to act more like me. Mm-hmm. So do you recommend generally that people who do have mental illnesses or are going through things that they're open and upfront about that and... For any listeners who may be feeling like, oh, I have anxiety, but I would never in a million years tell my friends that, what words of encouragement or what advice do you have for them? Do you think it's worth sharing that? And since it is such a personal thing, how do you recommend doing so if you do think they should? I think I tend to be, I used to not be an open communicator. And then something that I've learned is that there's no reason if you want someone to act a certain way and I don't communicate it with them, then, you know, who's the real dummy? So I think it's a little bit harsh to say it that way, especially when it's something like mental illness where you're going, well, I want them to treat me. I want them to understand, but I don't want to wear it on my sleeve and Mm -hmm. tell everyone and be stigmatized. But I guess I think you're also a very open communicator. What do you think? Do you think that's something that you would have an easy time communicating or do you do you find that that's something that you'd like, I don't know if I could admit that to people. I think it definitely is situation specific. So if it's something more serious, like the patients that you work with, obviously they, as you mentioned, it's more notable than if someone's just struggling with, not just, but if someone's struggling (laughs) with social anxiety, I do feel that open communication is generally better than not because usually, in my experience, working with people who do have those social anxieties, once people express that, they no longer feel so limited by it. But it's also person-specific. So I have seen people who don't tell anyone and they work work through it themselves with a therapist, with a coach, or however they go about doing that. But I do think that as a general blanket statement, telling the people that you trust where you're coming from so that they can empathize and understand why you don't want to do the things you don't want to do, it's very helpful. I was speaking with someone recently who just learned at, I think, 28 years old that he is on the autism spectrum. And everything was clicking into place. Like, oh, that's why I don't want to do these things. That's why I act this way. And he started telling his family. He's like, hey, I think this is why I've been doing this all these years. And it was hard. It's a hard pill for them to swallow just because there is that label. But then it, it started to, to click and make sense. And it actually, he was able to repair a lot of his relationships because then they could understand where he was coming from. You know, it's funny too because... About halfway into that, I realized, I think sometimes we see people do this thing where they pre-excuse themselves, Mm -hmm. where they come out with saying they have this, that, or another, or one of their problems, and they come out with it immediately around the time when you first admit 
like meet them and they pre-excuse themselves because they're about to say something shitty or do something mm-hmm. which is not acceptable but they'll open it with I guess I don't have any specifics off my head but you're right I think a key thing there is with people you trust because there's nothing wrong with I mean I guess you can leave breadcrumbs for someone if you have social anxiety you can just say something like oh yeah sometimes I get a little anxious when I go around people you don't have to full you don't have to come all the way out but there's definitely something valuable about communicating just you know say how things really make you feel mm-hmm. or even with our because I think especially with our clients who have schizophrenia, they really struggle with that where they have trouble interpreting their emotions, which also you definitely run into with autism, famous mm-hmm. thing, I guess, but they don't they have trouble identifying the emotion and expressing the emotion. And so sometimes even we had one male who had anxiety problems as well that I'm thinking about the top of my head, but he had sort of had trouble he wanted to be better and he wanted to do better. And the thing is, these the voices in his head are awful. They're saying things like, you know you're not going to do that right. You know that whenever you cook, you're just going to burn it and the guys aren't going to like you. They already don't like you. Why do you think that doing all this effort is going to make them like you more? Mm-hmm. And once he, you open up a little bit and you understand that's how he thinks, you're going, oh my God, I never knew that. That's terrible. But he had trouble expressing that as anxiety because it's not anxiety as we know it. Mm -hmm. That is something I could not have predicted. I wouldn't have understood. And so we both has trouble identifying it. And even if he could identify his anxiety as trouble explaining it in a way that didn't make him seem crazy. It's only because he knew us for long enough that he felt comfortable saying it. We knew a situation as opposed to, you know, imagine if I was, if I met a friend and I told him that voice in my head was saying that that's scary. Yeah, and I think it's so tricky with mental health because of all the labels and the stigmas surrounding it, and we want, obviously, for people to feel comfortable sharing those sorts of things, but at the same time, if you send that to your friend at a party, you might freak people out. Right. But I want to go back to what you were saying before. I love that you pointed out sometimes people pre-excuse themselves. So if you go in and you say, oh, I'm just a really awkward person, I have social anxiety, and you give that excuse, first of all, you don't want to, I think the the word anxiety is thrown around a lot more now. And I'm not saying that there aren't heightened levels of anxiety in our society because there definitely, definitely are. But one, you don't want to use that as an excuse for yourself or for others. You shouldn't let that limit you. Yes, it's going to be tougher to work through, but using it as not relying on that as an excuse to get you out of doing certain things, especially if you're not working with a professional on this. But the other thing is if you do have social anxiety, let's say you don't have to use that word. You don't have to say, Hey friend, just so you know, like I'm dealing with this. You can also say, Hey, I don't really feel comfortable going to that particular restaurant because I don't enjoy the crowd there. Let's say it's a restaurant that has really loud music and it makes you anxious and there's a lot of people. You can say it that way. You don't have to say, this is because I quote unquote have this thing. You can talk about the way it makes you feel and why you don't want to do that. And that's a form of openly communicating that will allow your conversation partner to empathize without necessarily putting that label on it. I definitely, I'm actually going to steal some of your language. What I love that you said is rather than excusing, you shouldn't let it limit yourself. Mm-hmm. Because I do feel, 
it's such a thorny one of saying excusing because even I ran into it when I'm talking about pre-excusing because to some degree, if you can't handle something, you do need to say it. And it sounds like an excuse, but sometimes you're going, it is an excuse, but I needed to say it. I can't handle it. Mm-hmm. But saying limiting yourself, I think is better because you can always push your limits. Mm-hmm. And if you let it limit yourself, then that's how you let it actively manifest your life and by, you know, working on those limits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm definitely with you as well. I just, I'm such an advocate of open communication because I especially find with our clients, it's, it's almost, it's very medical and anti-social how we take the things that they do. And then we talk about it behind closed doors and we're saying, oh, I think he's going on a manic swing because if you look at what he's been doing, blah, 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 and you break down the behaviors and it's so... It's just very anti-personal, it, it feels like, to just break them down into cases as opposed to even just to hear them just say something like, wow, I just feel a little bit, I just feel a little bit out of it. I have too much energy today. Mm-hmm. Then it makes me feel like, I think this is definitely maybe specific to my line of work, but it's a lot, it's much easier. I feel like when it sounds like, like with autism, when they have trouble recognizing it within themselves, it's hard to work with. But when people have some degree of insight, I don't know if I had a point with this. That's okay. So <laughs> I'm curious how this job that you do, which is so particular, and a lot of people aren't put in these sorts of situations, how has that affected, if at all, your communication style in your social life and in other situations when you're not with your patients? You know, it's funny because one of the things I say, and I think if you've met me outside of here, as you know, I'm a famous interrupter. I am so, I always have a lot of things to say and I like to say it. And then whenever I'm at, client, at work, I can definitely set myself as, I don't know, we all have a professional attitude of this is where I listen. And then whenever I'm with my friends, it feels like a lot of that goes out the window. But I think what I really have learned is when things start to get serious, when, I, when I'm having a serious conversation with someone, I with these guys, you have to let them say the whole story. There's no sense in interrupting. And I've had to... So one of my favorite stories is we had two clients. So I was cooking with one of the clients, and there was another one standing by. And he was just like, hey, hey, don't put that in there. Hey, hey, I don't like that. You know, just giving the little things. And our client goes, oh, quit being a critic. And he goes, I ain't being a critic. So the first client goes, oh, yeah, what's a critic? So the second one starts kind of like rubbing rubbing his uh, mustache, licking his lips, and he goes, critic is a rat killer. And so the first client starts laughing, and I'm looking at him, what is going on? And so he goes, no, guess again. And he goes, a critic is eight years in jail for murder? And then he goes, no, 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 and I cut him off right there. So actually what was going on there is he's coming from a jail mentality, right? And he cannot be weak. It's, you know, what we ask is a little question. Do you know what a critic is? He cannot admit that he's stupid. And so what does he do? He goes straight to tough. Mm -hmm. But if at first, whenever he said rat killer, I definitely didn't piece it together what he was actually trying to communicate. What he was actually communicating was, I'm uncomfortable, I'm scared, I don't want to look stupid. Mm -hmm. By actually even allowing that weird thing to happen again, where he said it again, then it allowed it to click where I go, okay, he's just trying to act tough. Why is he trying to act tough? Oh, and then you started filling it in. But even with friends, sometimes it sounds like they say this story, mm-hmm. 
and we had neighbors growing up who were auditors, and they would do the thing where they don't respond, where they just keep looking at you, and it gets you to keep talking. And sometimes I'll do that with clients, or I'll do that with friends. And it's only once they go, well, I think, and they have to try to re-explain it to you. And only after saying it two or three times do I actually get, oh, now I see what they're trying to say. Mm. Wow, that is such an interesting story. I'm just imagining all of the interpreting that you must have to do when you're not just you communicating with your clients, but your clients communicating with each other. And if they all have something else going on in their own heads and they're communicating with each other, I imagine you really are skilled at interpreting and having to explain and identify those miscommunications and mediate the situation. Well, imagine you trying to be empathetic and then all the other ones, you know, because the first client who was saying, what do you think a critic is? He knew he was going to get into some funny stuff. He knew, oh yeah, this is not going to go well. And it's, it, you know, it's weird. You're almost an island of empathy. Of being like, it feels like the one person who's trying to understand as opposed to just poking the bear and poking the bear. Yeah. What's been the biggest challenge for you in the road to getting to understand where it is they're coming from and understanding and interpreting their communication styles or just working there in general? You know what? I find it funny that when I'm with friends and we talk about other people and what they did, it's gossiping. But whenever Mm -hmm. I do it at work, it's professional. We're analyzing and so I can talk to you all about our friends and, well, why do you think they said that? And we're breaking it down. And then you kind of leave and you go, we don't have anything to talk about. We're just being petty. We're just talking about other people. But then at work, if we don't sit down and talk to each other about what we've seen and kind of try to make guesses, it's hard to add the things up because it's so, like I said, like with that story, it's bizarre. But what he was actually trying to communicate was not so bizarre. That's, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually kind of sad that he can't not be tough and he can't, it stops him from growing and learning that he just has to, if he doesn't know, he's got to shut it down. He can't learn. But it's, because I don't really like to gossip and I feel like when I'm with people and we're just stuck on talking about other people, I kind of get a little antsy and like, all right, I don't want to be this person. But to some degree, it's, you can't, I don't know all the answers. It's not like I'm you know, yeah. especially it's not like I'm a certified counselor or anything. And so without talking to other people, it can be hard to understand. Yeah. And yeah. it's just fascinating to analyze human behavior. I, I know, isn't it? Isn't <laughs> that the joy of people watching? Yeah. The thing that I really am interested in asking is for people who don't work with people with these sorts of disabilities all the time, What advice do you have? How do we know if someone actually has a mental disorder and what can we do to improve our communication with them and be better empathizers? I think, ooh, my quickest answer would have to be it's not about you. Because I found that a lot with these clients that they're doing, they're acting out, they're doing this, that, and another. And you're saying, why are they doing this to me? Why do they do this? I'm trying to teach a class. Why do they bring this to my class? And it's... It, that is narcissistic to assume that it's about me because there is so much going on in their head that, you know, every once in a while, obviously, people act out against other people. They're addictive, they're et cetera, et cetera. But I think especially with fa- – I'm thinking about some family members who have mental health issues that I have and with them not showing up to, like, Christmas or maybe they show up for Christmas dinner and they leave right after. 
and you're saying, well, why, why did he do that to us? He never wants to see us. It's not about, it's not about us. If he could put on a face and do things for his family, he would have been doing that Mm -hmm. for a long time. But you have to remember that it's about him. There's something that he is struggling with. There's something that he's going through that I'm not seeing to think that this guy lives his life for me, lives his life surrounding that I wanted to see him is narcissistic. And I got to be empathetic of it's clearly, we all think of ourselves. He must be thinking of himself and not thinking of us. And you know, even if they make a bad decision, you have to keep in mind, he's making a bad decision because he's thinking of himself, not us. Maybe I need to be the empathetic one. I love everything you just said. (laughs) Molly and I are huge on perspective taking. And so if, for example, I talk to a lot of strangers. I will ask for directions on the street, ask if I can park my car in their driveway to go to the beach. (laughs) (laughs) I have no qualms doing that. But a lot of times, not a lot of times, I find people are generally very nice. But sometimes people will be really rude. And so that, I think, discourages a lot of people from talking to strangers. But then our knee-jerk reaction, like if I ask someone a question and they don't help me, I'm like, wow, they're a jerk. But I need to stop and really perspective take. I have no idea what they were doing two minutes before I walked up. They could be coming from a funeral, for all I know. They could have the worst day ever. I don't know that they're a jerk just because they behaved that way. And what you're making me realize is a lot of strangers that I meet on the street, I have no idea their background. They could have a mental disorder, you know? And so... I think it is really important what you're saying is not take things so personally and not make it about ourselves. We don't know in any situation what is going on in the other person's mind and especially remembering, I think this is a really great reality check to say, hey, there are people out there with really serious conditions and if we label them as being crazy or what a rude person, that's so unfair because one, we don't know them, and two, they have other things going on that we can't even begin to understand, and so we can't take that for granted, and uh, yeah, so just reiterating, perspective taking is huge, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. I really like, oh, I I feel like every time you say things, there's at least three or four different things I want to latch onto and talk about, and I have to choose. (laughs) I do, I think it's funny, because A, you, you lived in New York for a while, and I feel like New York is a perfect example where I might, like, you stop and ask someone for directions and they're rude. And once again, it's, why were they rude to me? Mm-hmm. And we have to, it was a reaction to us. We're, especially from New Yorkers who are used to being maybe harassed more than someone in Savannah where we kind of take the time to talk to people. That's, they might not even be having a bad day or something terrible. Just their natural reaction to it is, it's about them. It's not about us. It's not that we were threatening or terrible or approached them wrong. Mm-hmm. They just, nope, don't have time for that. I'm used to being approached. Nope. Don't want to do it anymore. And I also feel like, this is a little tangential, you didn't quite say this, but I like to use, you say the word crazy, and even, I've heard people say that they don't even like to use the word normal or abnormal, because they're going, you know, what is the perfect normal? We don't really have, even the most normal person, there's got to be someone who says, oh, they're just the most blah, blah, blah person I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like That's why I like to use the word bizarre, because I think it sounds a little bit harsh when you say bizarre. But it's kind of the best way that I can put it because, like I say, they are trying to reach the same things as us. The way they go about it is just different. And so I like to think of bizarre not so much as something that cannot be understood, but is just not predictable. Mm-hmm. I, 
just for the record, for listeners, because I realized you didn't know that I did this, when I said the word crazy, I made air quotes with my fingers because I absolutely hate that word and I think it's terribly derogatory, so I would never actually call someone that actually has a mental illness crazy, maybe with my friends, like, oh, you're crazy, that's one thing, but not in terms of that, so just when you listen to that part, I wasn't meaning that as a term to use, it was largely air quoted, we don't want to make assumptions about people. But, yeah. <laughs> we do it. We'll say it because we'll say it casually because we'll get so frustrated because obviously mm-hmm. it gets frustrating and we'll be like, well, what do you get? You're trying to reason with a crazy person and then we'll kind of cringe afterwards and we'll go, oh, I don't like how I sound when I say that. It just mm-hmm. sounds so, uh, it does, I could go into this forever, but it does bother me when people complain about, you just need to have tougher skin. I think calling someone crazy is awful. Like calling someone crazy as if they can never be normal as if you can't understand them. Oh, that makes you sound like, I don't like the way that sounds out of people. Because also what you were just saying, like, what is normal? And if we are judging based on some criteria that doesn't exist, it's really unfair to do in any situation. And these people, it's not like they were just born. I mean, a lot of these behaviors is, we can trace it back to mental illness, but basically we have this, you can look at people and you say, what is their maximum level of functioning? Mm-hmm. And we can look at people who develop schizophrenia, who they actually grew up in a middle class home. They had a good childhood. They developed it because, you know, terrible. Sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. And then we have other people who were living in the hood, in the ghetto, and they had a bad upbringing. They have schizophrenia. And the functional outcome of someone who was raised well and has schizophrenia is significantly better. Because these other people, not only do they struggle with mental illness, but they have all these behaviors of, you know, ain't no one going to help you. You need to take what's yours. Or they have these behaviors of, like, we have one guy, and it's so sad. He keeps telling me, Scotty, which I don't like, <laughs> Scotty, I love white people. Black people, they're trying to kill. They're trying to cheat. They're trying to take stuff. And you go, no, 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 stop right there, stop right there, stop right there. But where he grew up, he grew up in a bad area. Mm-hmm with a lot of other black people. And then he sees white people as the only time he ever really met white people was like whenever he'd be in and out of hospitals because they're the professional staff or then even on staff, he's talking to white people and they're professionals. And then he looks at some of the other people in his group home, which is sad because we have white people who are terrible. And then we have black people who are the most mild mannered, easiest person to work with. Mm -hmm. But he didn't grow up with any role models. And it's not just, even if he didn't have any mental illness, the way that he grew up definitely went into his behaviors. And it's sad that you're also trying to not just work with mental illness, but you're also, you know what, this this might be the only time in your life where you're going to be somewhere where people are actually going to work on this with you, where people are actually going to actively try to change your view. And, you know, like I think of one of my coworkers who was black and he's about to get his like doctorate in PT. He's this really mild mannered guy. And we're like, and our client loves him. Be standing on the porch, hey guys, hey guys, so and so is here. And we're like, this is his role model. This is a role model. He's been waiting like 20 or 30 years in his life to come around. But it's sad that it's it's another thing that we take for granted, people's upbringings. And we, mm-hmm. I, I know I find that with friends, I assume that friends were raised in a similar way to me just because it's, it's one of those... Um, one of those shortcuts that we make when someone's similar to what when we like someone we assume is similar to us i'm sorry that went off on a bit of a tangent but there's a lot of things there i love talking about no there's so much to talk about and unpack here so i'm curious 
what advice you would have for anyone who, let's say, does have a family member with mental illness and they don't know how to react or what signs can we look for if, for example, where I had a friend a few years ago who I realized in hindsight was probably a legitimate narcissist and I communicated with her as best as I could but had I known that about her from the beginning I would have approached the whole situation differently and I was talking to someone the other day who was saying oh yeah I'm pretty sure my sister's a narcissist like she's not even part of our family anymore but they don't know how to handle it so if there's any just general advice or tips you would give to people who are in some sort of relationship with people with mental illness what would be what have you found to be helpful in interacting with that population and what do you think would be helpful for our listeners? Well, you know what? I'm going to half turn it to you because (laughs) especially with narcissists, we've had a lot of, well, not a lot of people, but, oh, they take up so much of my effort. (laughs) They they drain my life, Mm -hmm. our people with narcissistic personality. And I'm, I don't know if you found this too, where looking at it, you know, at the time, once again, it's all about, it's all about me, these people with narcissism. And I'm saying, why are they doing this to me? Why do they keep doing this? And you only look at it from your view. When I'm sure you found, once you accepted that she had narcissism, then there were like controlled environments where, you know, you wouldn't take her everywhere. But if maybe they were like, hey, do you want to go to a concert or something? And you go, well, you know what? They're going to be narcissistic. They're going to dance. They're going to be want to be the center of attention. But when we're there, that works. If they said you want to get coffee and you're going, I don't want to listen to you. I can't just listen to you. Then you just need to accept and set boundaries. I love that you mentioned that. That is huge, and Molly and I have talked about that a lot on the show, especially during our friendship series, is setting those boundaries and being clear with them. I think when you are dealing with someone with some sort of mental health issue, whether it's narcissism or even social anxiety, you need to know how to accommodate them without doing it in a way that's going to make you resent them. Yes. We've all met. I mean... We found with our clients, taking them on outings, that we'll have people who are... Actually, I'm thinking of the same person, the rat killer one. Mm-hmm. And of all things, we went bowling with him, and he was the life of the show. Of Normally, you can't take him anywhere, or if you do, you're kind of stressing the whole time. But we took him bowling, and he was... He thrived. He was the one person there who everyone else was saying, no, I don't want to do this. No, this is for kids. No, I don't want to blah, blah, blah. He just got out there, was throwing the ball around, threw some strikes, was high-fiving everyone. And it's, it kind of all relates to, I think this is something that I'm very passionate about, that these people, it's not that they're any less deserving of having love or having acceptance or having any of that in their life, but you need to find, you know, you just have to set boundaries for yourself because it's not as if, oh, this person's narcissistic or, oh, this person is, ooh, he got litany of issues, but mm-hmm. he has these issues. He just can't be worked with. He can't be loved. He just can't be. Everyone deserves to have, to feel like they're understood, to feel like they can have relationships with other people. And sometimes as, I don't want to say the smarter ones, but as the people with maybe more empathy or insight, we just need to be better at setting boundaries so that we can actually allow them to feel that and also feel ourselves to get the best out of the other person and not just manage, but enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And it's about setting those boundaries so that you can just put yourself in the situations where both of you are enjoying each other and playing off each other rather than just keep putting yourself in a bad situation and keep getting mad and just saying, they'll never get better, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's important. You don't want to give up on 
those people. And so do whatever you can in your power to help them to the point where it's not going to exhaust you or make you resent them, but where you can mutually benefit. Yeah, you can't be a saint. You can't just keep draining yourself and saying Mm -hmm. someone's got to do it. No, not necessarily. And you're not giving them the best of yourself if you're allowing them to just drain you. That is a very good point. So since we talk about communication in all sorts of settings, you mentioned casually that you're very passionate about communication in the online dating world. Oh, yeah. So with the, in a few minutes, we can always do a full episode on this at some point, but I just wanted to know your main thoughts on that or if there's another communication issue that you've just been dying to tell someone, here is your outlet, what are your What's on top of your mind? Well, first of all, a purely audio medium is the perfect way to get people to swipe me right. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely recognize me. Oh, man. You know, my favorite thing to talk about is that it's this crazy world where there are no rules, where I feel like the people that I actually connect with are the people where I kind of come into it with my own set of rules and ideas of, I think we should talk this much before dating. I think that we shouldn't add each other on Snapchat and just start sending pictures immediately. And it's funny how you can match with someone and feel like you're similar to them. But I think the way that we communicate, the way that they learn how to communicate, if they end up doing communicating with you how you want to be communicated with, isn't that actually a really good sign? Because, you know, you can meet someone at a bar and hit it off and, you know, similar sense of humor attracted to each other and date them for a while. And the first issue that comes up, you just don't communicate similar at all. But even just this weird thing of texting each other beforehand and how much you feel like you need to talk before you date, if it works for both of you, it's these weird unspoken communication things that kind of have to be similar for it to actually work out. Yeah, I think that it definitely helps if you're similar communication styles. Like I, for example, don't love texting. So if someone's texting me like pages every day, I'm like, stop, that's annoying me. But also, I don't think that's a disqualifier because if you're open and you say, hey, I don't really like texting, let's talk about that in person, and they are receptive to that and they adjust their communication style to match yours, I still think there is potential there for it to work. Of course, in a perfect world, it would be great if you automatically started with the same communication style. It's definitely a green light and a good sign, but I wouldn't say write someone off if they don't have the same communication style. You know what? That's a funny one. It's something that I listen to there. And if you said, hey, I'm not a great texter. Let's meet up sometime. If a girl sent that to me, I'd be like, oh, green light. This is like, <laughs> we're going somewhere. We're really getting along. Whereas opposed to you, where you're just like, oh, no, I'm not much of a texter. And you're so comfortable talking to strangers that you're going, well, why not just meet them? Mm-hmm. We're already this far. May as well as opposed to some with a different communication style where I would get that and I would be like, guys, she's digging it. <laughs> this is. <laughs> that is a good point. I guess it's interesting because you don't know, especially in an online dating situation, you don't know someone's natural personality. Like if they're really shy, then maybe saying, I'd rather talk on the phone is going to be like, whoa, that's huge. Whereas if, to them, it might not seem like a big deal. It's even, it's crazy because I feel like you almost have to earn these communication privileges where first you're messaging over the app. And then if you do well enough there, you graduate to getting like a text and a number. And if you do well there, maybe you'll graduate to like getting a Snapchat or getting to meet them. And then even the more you meet them, the more you start texting or Snapchatting more. Mm-hmm. And then you graduate to, 
you know, we get along so well that I can actually call them and talk to them for an hour. And you, like, graduate to these different levels of communication, which is crazy in itself. But it's, there's just so much to go off of. It's just so funny to me because before all these apps, the first step would be a phone call. And it wasn't that scary. Like, you know, watching the Brady Bunch, and they would answer the phone in the middle of the kitchen, like, the parents are right there, and they're just like, oh, you want to go on a date? Sure. It's like... Now, it would never happen like that. Oh, man. We don't even have house homes anymore. Right. And even just the, oh, I do think that it's funny because we were talking about this the other day that you're such an open communicator that it almost comes off as flirty because like as I'm talking about this, hold on with me for a second, as I'm talking about this, like graduate to different levels of communication when someone is very open and easy to talk to and they're not reserved and they're not like oh, I don't really get talked to until I know someone. People take that not just as a sign of a good communicator, but as a sign of when they're used to other people, I think as a guy especially, Mm -hmm. when I'm used to me always being the one driving conversation on dates, really driving the relationship forward and having the other just trying to have to like guess what the other person feels and go, you know what, I just got to ask if they want to hang out again because they're not going to ask me. To have someone else who would just be very open, just be like, oh, yeah, I really did enjoy that. That was a great time. We should meet up again. I'd be like, oh, wow, if they're communicating with me like this, I'm really doing something right. And so it's a shame that we set these levels for ourselves of communication and we say, I'm only going to, you know, once I really know them, then I'll text them back a lot. When if you want to get to know someone, there's nothing to lose. Maybe don't spill all your beans, but... You should be your best self. You should just try to communicate openly and have as much fun and as good of a time as possible. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I could, this was probably silly bringing up this topic because now I just want to keep going on for days, but maybe we can save it for another day. Any lingering thoughts or anything else that you want to share? Um, I'm thinking if we talk about Tinder and stuff, I'm bringing a bottle of wine because it's, <laughs> it's about appropriate. No, short of that, I you are a great interviewer, and I feel bad because I keep thinking to myself, oh, i got to turn this around, and i got to try to open it up for her to add on and say things. But No, you, I, we, the point of this episode is to get to know you, and so I appreciate that comment. But my job as the interviewer is to ask the questions we want to hear about you these people get to hear me all the time. Yeah, you're asking, you ask so many good questions that I really want to talk about that I keep trying to, yeah, I keep trying to include you, but I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to talk about this one thing and then I'm going to turn it around and I never get to it. That's okay. We want to hear what you have to say. So then my last question, as you know from listening to the show before, we always conclude with a take home for our listeners. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about this, but what take-home would you give? It could be related to mental health and the work you do. It could be related to online dating. It could be related to anything that you want. What take-home would you give for anyone listening to the show today? If you're listening to the online dating portion, then take home my number. But (laughs) if you're listening to the rest of it, I think just take home what I said where keep in mind it's not about you. That we often feel like these people are doing things to us without having the empathy of there's so much going on in their head that we are far down on the list of things they're thinking about. They're not doing it to you. Just try to think of what is their goal? You know, it may seem like they're doing something terrible, but there's always a goal. They do it to achieve something that they need. Mm -hmm. So just try to think of, yeah, obviously, I'm sure Trish talks about it. Just try to be empathetic. 
I would say that is the golden nugget of today's conversation because it is such an important thing. We need to remember. So to put this in an actionable to-do for you all is remember that you are the protagonist of your own life. I'm the protagonist of my life. Scott's the protagonist of his life. So we all are going to be thinking in terms of ourselves. The next time somebody does something that rubs you the wrong way or that you immediately take offense to, stop for a minute and try to put yourself in their shoes and see where they might be coming from as opposed to having that knee-jerk reaction of, oh my gosh, how could they do that to me? I'm stealing that. I like that as well. (laughs) I'm stealing that language. You... Okay, it's obvious that you've talked about these things before because you keep saying things. I'm like, wow, that's so good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just paraphrasing what you said. So if you have any questions or thoughts for Scott, feel free to email us at lostartofcommunication at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or Instagram, Lost Art of Communication, and we will be sure to relay the info to Scott. He does, given the nature of his work, need to keep a certain level of confidentiality. But if he does... If you do have any questions for him, he would be more than happy to answer them. Just send those our way, and we look forward to our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for having me. Of